This week's TripCast is presented by Raise Your Hand Texas. The Raise Your Hand Texas Foundation is excited to present For the Future, a series of more than 40 candidate forums and town halls leading up to the 2020 primary election. Find an event near you at raiseyourhandtexas.org. And the University of Texas at Austin, a new partnership between the Michael and Susan Dell Foundation and UT Austin will provide support to thousands of UT students with financial need. More at utforme.utexas.edu. Hello, this is Alexa Uda with the Texas Tribune Tribcast for Wednesday, February 5th. I'm joined this week by managing editor Matthew Watkins. Hello. Political reporter Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. And executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. We'll be taking your questions via Facebook and Twitter, so send them our way using the hashtag Tribcast. Um, so, like Iowa, we are running a little bit late here um, for somewhat similar reasons. This is weird because I wrote the story and I have to lay it out to you guys and then talk about it. Well, go ahead and interview we're yourself. Just, and we're just going to do it. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll go take a walk. <laughs> so, um, we're starting late because we just uh, published a story about um, what we've learned from the Texas Democratic Party that basically a change to the way the Texas Secretary of State's office collects election night returns means we're probably looking at a delay in the tally of delegates on Super Tuesday. So we'll know who won, Mm -hmm. but we won't know how many Texas delegates they take to the convention. Correct. At least not the night of. I mean, we're looking at like at least the next day, I think, is what the way it was presented to me by Democratic officials. Which at that point is more of an urgent question than ever, because by the time we get to Super Tuesday, this is going to be such a delegate game, right? You know, these first few contests are, you know, obviously delegates are important, but usually they're about building momentum, you know, winning the narrative, winning the news cycle. But by the time we get to Texas and Super Tuesday, you know, knowing what that delegate breakdown is going to be, I think is going to be a more urgent question than ever for the campaigns. And as you pointed out to me, we won't know the Texas delegate breakdown or the California delegate breakdown on Super Tuesday. So. That is correct. Yeah, we are no longer the biggest prize. California is that now. But they're also looking at, I mean, I don't know that it's considered delays on their end if it's just sort of built in to what is, I think, a more generous mail-in ballot allowance of time for people to vote, I think. Don't quote me on that necessarily. Yeah, they take longer to certify their ballots because they're waiting for absentees to land in the mail. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, for Texas, normally, <clears throat> you know, you have delays in reporting at all at any point, really, um, depending on the county and depending on who's running the election. But, I mean, at this point, how much of a make-or-break situation will some of these campaigns be in? I mean, obviously, Super Tuesday is sort of the big haul for a lot of them after some of these, the momentum that comes from this first, these first few. Well, they could just declare victory like they did in Iowa, even though we didn't have <laughs> With, Without any right. full Klobuchar gives a speech. Buttigieg <laughs> declares it in a memo. <laughs> yeah. I mean, t- Texas is going to be super important, not to put a pun on Super Tuesday, but it's going to be very important to at least two of these candidates. Number one, Mike Bloomberg, who, you know, has been very open about the fact that he's skipping the first few states and is going all in, starting on the states that vote on Super Tuesday, including Texas. And number two, uh, Joe Biden, who, you know, is coming off of what appears to be, I know not all precincts are in, but a disappointing finish in Iowa and more than ever needs to make good on kind of his, his long held, um, you know, contention that his coalition is strongest once you get past those first few 
you know, predominantly white early voting states. Um, so those are two candidates right off the top of my head that I think are going to need a strong showing in Texas. And then you have someone like Elizabeth Warren, who is one of the first candidates to really formally uh, organize. And Texas has had people on the ground here since late summer. So um, she's obviously making a real effort here, and that they, that uh, primary is going to matter a lot for her. The advantage that Bloomberg has is that he's funded. Um, everybody else has to keep the momentum going to keep the donors interested and to keep the money coming in so that they can run in the next race and the next race and the next race. Bloomberg has the advantage of, and it's why he could skip the early states, he has the advantage of, I've already got all the money I need, bring it. So he's got a little bit of leeway that you know somebody like Biden might not have. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's this, too bad Bloomberg can't fund some, you know, <laughs> quick research, quick turn research yeah. on how to get these delegates. <laughs> how to best do this. <laughs> the, you, you can find out the delegates on your Bloomberg terminal. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I think even even with Bloomberg's money, I don't know that you're going to be able to get these any quicker. The, the reality is that, I mean, we distribute delegates in such a ridiculously complicated process. And it's down to state senate district levels. And so, sure, in districts for where— the For the Democrats. Right. And so, sure, in, in districts where you have whole counties, you can probably calculate this pretty quickly for some of these. But when you're talking about the districts in Harris County and Travis County and Dallas County, right. I mean, you there's no way of getting that— unless you're getting it officially from the counties the night of. The reverse engineering, uh, the way it was explained to me— is an incredibly complicated thing to do as well. You've got to get precincts that people voted in. We have vote centers now, so people can right. vote anywhere in the county, and you can't even start early until all the pre- until all the results are in because we no longer vote by precincts in a lot of these counties that are now at issue. It's so complex. So, so now I'm assuming that it'll take uh, some period of time to get the tabulations for the Senate districts that they use in the delegate counts. That also means they're going to have to take the same amount of time to tabulate for precincts mm-hmm. since we're using the vote centers that might encompass all the precincts in a county. I mean, the way election officials have said it, local election officials have said it to me is, you know, the idea of reporting by precinct on election night is nutty. I mean, it, it, they just wouldn't be able to do it. What they've done in previous, at least in the 2016 election, was their reporting requirements on the night of the election included reporting by Senate district within their county. And so that's how that was sort of tabulated up. That is seemingly what is gone now. And the Democrats are sort of considering, you know, can we do this independently? I don't think they're going to commit to anything until they can do it in a legitimate way that doesn't blow up in their faces. And I think in the style of Iowa, even though an app. The, the blame here is sort right. of, you know, the, the reasoning for why this is happening is kind of diff- very different here. But, I mean, if you try to reverse engineer it, you're not going to get some of these results until at least midnight, the, these full results. And then you've got to start reverse engineering then, and that's hoping that you get all of the precinct-level information you need from counties. I, I mean, I don't know that this is going to be a thing that we wake up to and have all the answers to. Let me be a surrogate for Evan Smith for a minute. Yeah. So, I mean, a normal voter, I mean, we, we had this conversation in the hall a while ago. Yeah. You know, for a normal voter, we'll know who won Texas. We'll know who got the most votes in Texas. Um so all this other stuff is for the political audience, right? And not necessarily for the, I mean, walk me through it. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, there's a level of momentum and attention, obviously, that comes with being able to say, I won Texas. And people don't probably know the extent to which, how, how pitched it actually is and how the power and the point of winning Texas, how it's actually distributed. Right. So, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know that it's the sort of thing that the, you know, voter who maybe doesn't participate in every election but is excited for this one and votes 
will pick up on. But anyone who's watching the delegate math ahead of, you know, people want to avoid a contested convention. Anyone watching the delegate math is going to want some answers as soon as possible, I would think, yeah. particularly with the, the number of delegates that are up for grabs that day. Fair enough. Do any of the big states, this is a cold question, so you may not have it at hand. Do any of the big states have winner-take-all delegate systems? They're all basically parsed like this, aren't they? You can win the state, but the delegates, you know, most of them go to this one, some of them go to that one, and so on. Yeah, I, I think most of the early ones are pitched in this way as well, but I'm not honestly 100% sure. I think one thing to keep in mind is that in 2008, I just looked this up to make sure, uh, Clinton won the vote in right. Texas, and Obama actually ended up winning more delegates. The old, the old Texas two-step. Yeah, and that, yeah. back then it was even more complicated than they do now because there was a caucus immediately after the primary vote. Thank God that was before Twitter. <laughs> yeah, that was. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, it's conceivable in a, um, you know, if the, the top two vote-getters are close in percentage that we won't know who got the most delegates from Texas, right. even if we know who got the most votes. And I think with so many candidates in the race, it's conceivable that that'll be a pretty tight one. I mean, I, I don't know that we can anticipate huge margins in between them. All right. It'll be fun. Well, I'm letting my adrenaline come sleep. down. <laughs> yeah, right. We have a live trip cast at 730 the next day, so see you there. Um, okay, so moving on to what I think is a more boring topic, but Patrick seems to disagree. <laughs> Let's talk about the Put primaries. <laughs> we're a little less than um, we're a little less than a month away of what has to, I think, be a pretty boring primary season. I don't know if you if you can compare it to previous way to, ones. Way to fuel that turnout. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I mean, at least in the non-presidential races. But, okay, let's talk about the Democratic primary for U.S. Senate. Patrick seems to believe it's getting less boring. Wow. Where are we at, Patrick? Well, it's getting less boring. I mean, you know, a piece <laughs> of evidence for that is, you know, we learned this week that uh, MJ Hagar, who is the national Democratic choice in this race, she was endorsed late last year by the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. Um, she is getting some very heavy outside support in the home stretch of this primary, um, a national group that had backed her when she initially got in the race uh, last year, Vote Vets. Uh, announced this week that they're going to be uh, spending $3.3 million on a, a TV ad buy supporting her across the state, which um, Texas is a very expensive state to advertise in, uh, but $3.3 million in the context of primary uh, that's like, that's rises like to the occasion, we'll say. That's like 10 uh, days of advertising. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a two-week buy, um, at least initially. And so it's a pretty major development in that we. this is a 12-way primary. It's been very crowded. According to polls, a lot of voters are still undecided. MJ Hagar has had in some of these polls the slightest of leads. No one, including her, has broken away. And so this is a move that, you know, seems very, um, you know, deliberately designed to cement her place in, in what is going to be an all but guaranteed runoff. And so I think that this sets the stage over the next month, less than a month before the March 3rd primary for a real scrum for who's going to make it into that second place spot. Um, and it'll be interesting to see because, you know, so far, you know, there hasn't been a lot of candidate to candidate combat in this primary. And if there has been, it's been between MJ and the other candidates. Um, and now just from a strategic perspective, I think some of these other candidates, as they try to figure out what the path is to get into that runoff, may have to turn to each other um, and start offering some contrast with one another. Because uh, with, you know, a $3.3 million outside spend, um, it may be fruitless um, at this point to try to, you know, knock down 
MJ at this point, but we'll see. I mean, it's a, it's been a very fluid, uncertain race. And as you pointed out, it has been relatively boring. I mean, um, you know, there hasn't been a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of headline grabbing events or anything like that. So it'll be, it'll be fascinating to see how it all ends up in the next month. Yeah. I mean, I think the idea of 56% undecided, according to one of the recent polls, that's nutty. And you've got like 12, I mean, you've got 12. Well, they're undecided and the numbers, you know, so far, I mean, we had a poll in October we have another one before the election, before the um, the early voting starts. But the number of people who don't know the names of any of these candidates, you know, the first question we ask is, have you heard of any of these people? Check all the names you know. And that's not great. In October, it was um, the best known was Chris Bell, who was unknown to 76% of Democratic <laughs> primary voters. That's a bad showing. Yeah, and part of it, too, is just the fundraising has been, you know, relatively low in this race. None of these candidates have the kind of money to spend to really boost their name ID in a very serious way. You know, MJ Hagar has been the top fundraiser. Um, you know, she raised, I think, $1.2 million in the most recent quarter and has $1 million cash on hand. Um, but, you know, even then for a battleground Senate race in the state of Texas, that's pretty pretty low money. And in terms of what the kind of money that these candidates have to spend right now, uh, no candidate has the money to go on TV themselves in a very serious way on a statewide basis at this point. Um, and so then again, that's why this outside group coming in for uh, Hagar is, is so significant. Does the lack of money going into the race right now uh, look to you as a big worry sign for the general election? Or is it more of a case where because no one's broken away from the pack, uh, people who might be willing to put money into this race in the fall are kind of holding out to see how this shakes out. Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's a, a little bit of both. You know, obviously the Democrats in this race claim that, you know, once this comes down to a head-to-head -head with John Cornyn, they're, they're going to be able to consolidate Democratic money a lot more quickly and a lot more thoroughly than they have in this primary. You know, the Democratic campaigns in this primary say that, you know, they talk to a decent amount of donors who say, hey, come back to me once you're the nominee or, hey, maybe come back to me once you're in a runoff, that things are just so unsettled right now. Um, so there, I think there is some truth to that. Um, on the other hand, though, you have John Cornyn waiting with a $12 million war chest mm -hmm. um, in the general election. That's going to be, you know, hard to overcome um, you know, to go dollar for dollar with him, uh, you know, regardless of how much consolidation you see. Uh, so it's, it's a little bit of both. I know that's, it, I guess, it, the safe answer. It's also a super expensive state. So if you're, you know, at the national level, if you're one of the institutional donors or a big pack or something like that, and you're looking for Senate seats to pick up, Texas is one of the most expensive places to contend for a Senate seat. And there are, you know, easier pickings elsewhere, at least financially, you know, Wyoming or, you know, Arizona, Arizona or other places where it's cheaper to run. And the money coming from those sort of institutional donors to Texas, you know, as, as you've written and others have written, is coming mostly into congressional races and into some of the statehouse races that they think can sway redistricting. Yeah. Last question on this one before we move on. Do we think Royce West's name ID in Dallas County is enough to get him into the runoff? I think it could be, and I say that having not seen any recent data or yeah. polling on what his name ID is in, in Dallas County, but obviously Dallas County in any statewide Democratic primary is going to make up a pretty significant part of the vote. He's been an elected official there, uh, been in office for 27 years, 28 years, this 2020, I guess, counting backwards. Um, so I think that that matters a decent amount. And he's been able to, uh, you know, from the start of this race, has said that he's had the support of dozens of these state lawmakers that he's worked with across the state and that they've been able to tap in their, into their networks for him. You know, he's gotten the endorsement of the state Tejano Democrats, um, which I think uh, surprised some people. He At least he's saying it's the 
first time they're saying in, in modern history that the group has endorsed an African-American uh, Democrat in this kind of race. So, you know, I mean, he, he definitely has some assets in this race, but I think at the end of the day, um, you know, because of how little significant spending by the campaigns there is going to be in this race, it really will fall back in some ways on name ID, just kind of the raw name ID of some of these candidates and, and their various geographic strengths. Yeah. Well, so what does the rest of the congressional battlefield look like, at least for the primaries? I mean, is there really anything interesting going on beyond the like Guayar Cisneros matchup? Even in, and even in that one, it seems like Guayar is going to be probably okay money wise, at least. Yeah, I mean, there right now the congressional battlefield in Texas is huge if you're counting the races that are in play between now and November. As you pointed out, you know, the, the biggest kind of primary challenge is this this Cuellar race. You also have Kay Granger fending off a, a very well-funded uh, primary mm-hmm. challenger in Fort Worth. Those are really the two main primary challenges that we're going to get a final answer on on March 3rd, right? Um, but then looking beyond that, I mean, you have uh, – National Republicans trying to flip back two seats they lost in 2018. You have uh, National Democrats trying to flip seven seats in Texas, a huge, huge offensive battlefield they have in Texas. And then, you know, partially in that mix, too, are are three open seats that National Democrats are targeting. And then you have three open seats uh, in safely Republican territory um, that have drawn really crowded Republican primaries. Um, and you know, a lot of those are going to be going to runoffs and, you know, those races are really going to narrow. And right now they're very kind of crowded and in some ways undefined. Um, but there's, there's a lot to work with. I want to see, I, you know, I know you've been talking about this some, I want to see how the carpetbaggers do. Mm-hmm. There are a number of candidates, some really prominent like Pete Sessions who are running in districts where they, you know, have some very tenuous claim to residency or to, um, anything like that. I mean, residency in a congressional race is wherever you claim it is. Um, but I'm curious to see how they go. Do the people in that district that goes from Waco to Bryan, how do they feel about a guy who's from northeast Dallas County? Um, there's a couple of others of those around. And yeah. I'm curious to see how that Yeah, that's a, that's a through line in a lot of these crowded Republican primaries, um, you know, and as we've seen in recent elections. We'll, we'll move if they right. win. <laughs> yeah, and as we've seen, too, another, another huge through line, not surprising at this point in American politics, but another, another huge through line in all these Republican primaries is, you know, loyalty to the president, you mm-hmm. know, and, you know, people, uh, you know, every communication that paid communication that we're seeing from so many of these candidates is, you know, I'm going to be a rock solid ally, the president, my opponents, you know, may have criticized him in the past, but, you know, believe me that I'll, I'll be there to fight for him in Washington. So, you know, we saw that a lot last cycle. Uh, the president continues to be overwhelmingly popular among Republican primary voters in Texas. So not a huge surprise this time, but that's just another big uh, battle line. Yeah, I feel like in previous election cycles, we have looked in some ways to the primaries as some sort of signal of what was going on within each party, right? right? And beyond the Granger and Goyard races, I'm not sure that anything's risen to that level, you know, aside from people sort of sticking with Trump, Trump pretty closely. And even then, I don't know that the Goyard race ends up being this sort of like progressive test that people want it to be. I, don't, I mean, I'm from Laredo and I would be really, that's not New York, you know, it's it's a very, very different kind of democratic target. And I, I'm curious if we'll be sitting here the day after the election sort of, you know, even talking about it, if it just ends up going the way I think what a lot of people want it to go, at least, you know, the establishment there. They're going to depend, you know, races like that one or that one and others like it are going to depend, I think, to some extent on how people vote in the Democratic primary for president and in the Democratic primary for U.S. Senate before they get to the Quayars, other Democratic candidates on that side of the in that primary, they've got to go through you know dozens of candidates. You know all these people running for president, 
all these people running for Senate, and there's so many factions in there that, you know, the voter might have to shake it off and reset to vote factionally in a, in a congressional race. Yeah. All right. Well, before our last topic, we've got two more sponsors we've got to thank. Uh, first up is QCare. Providing quality injury benefits coverage for your employees is the right thing to do. Get your current Texas injury benefit program designated as a QCare program and protect the 5% of Texans and employees who have no injury benefits coverage. QCare provides simple injury outcomes for Texans. And the Association of Electric Companies of Texas is your resource for understanding the electric markets in Texas. Get an overview with our Electricity 101 at AECT.net. All right. So what are we keeping an eye on, if anything, on the legislative primaries? Again, I mean, it's sort of quieter than it has been in the past, at least on the Republican side. Are we going to be paying more attention to the Democratic ones at this point? Not really. It is true that numerically, in a word. yeah, I mean, it is true that I think Ew. numerically that state house Democrats have more primary challengers this cycle um, than state house uh, Republicans. Um, but in terms of what's kind of which primary challenges are looking serious, uh, it's really still on the Republican side, and it's really narrowed at least if the recent campaign finance reports are to be believed to just a, a few races. Uh, the two Republican incumbents that that come to mind immediately are uh, Dan Flynn who's facing two primary challengers. One of them um, just got a huge infusion from the conservative mega donors, Tim Dunn and, and Ferris Wilkes. Um, and then you also have uh, another House Republican, J.D. Sheffield, um, who is facing, uh, I think, two Republican primary challenges as well. But the key here is that one of them is, is self-funding to a huge extent. He just loaned himself. In, in for a million, right? Yeah, he's, he's already loaned himself well over a million dollars, recently loaned himself $800,000. Um, so those are the two House Republicans that come to mind uh, immediately as, as you know, just on paper, uh, looking like they're facing some real threats uh, financially from some of their, uh, their primary challengers. Um, and we did see, speaking of Tim Dunn and, and Ferris Wilkes, uh, that they're, you know, playing in, in another race, um, the open seat race to replace Jonathan Sticklin. Mm. Um, they uh, gave $75,000 each to uh, Jeff Kaysen. I may be mis mispronouncing his last name, but Jeff Kaysen, who is Sticklin's preferred Republican successor in that seat. So starting to see them open up their wallets a little bit, but um, not seeing that kind of money, still not seeing that kind of money come from the typical kind of conduits, which are empowered Texans and Texas right to life, um, and still not seeing as broad of a battlefield as those kind, that kind of crowd invested in in, in previous cycles. But yeah. to some extent, those were the guys funding Empower Texans in, in previous races. Right. They're, yeah. they're also in another race. There's a Wilkes relation, right? Um, right, John, John Francis. John Francis, yeah. right. Yeah. This is the Mike Lang seat down around yeah. Granbury. Um, well, you see that money rolling around. That seems to be the story in the Democratic and the Republican primaries. Yeah. I mean, go ahead. I was just going to say we went through this summer where uh, the Empower Texans party was very disruptive you know it's clearly bringing down the speaker you know through the um but it looks like there's it's it's pretty certain now that it's we're going to go through another cycle where they won't be making significant gains in the legislature right in the house you know they might pick up one they might keep the stickland seat and things like that but not not nearly enough to have kind of any kind of a transformative effect on kind of how the house is governed you know, coming off a year where a lot of that kind of grassroots frustration is going on, they weren't particularly thrilled with the way the capital was run last year. Yeah. Well, speaking of someone who has opened up his wallet, we finally got a sense of what Bonin, the outgoing Speaker of the House, is doing with his money. 
Were there any, I mean, was anyone else surprised that Chris Patty got some money from him? And, you know, I mean, just from the scuttlebutt, that was the surprise, you know, that Patty was, you know, seen by some as one of the people that, um, if, if, if not, if, if he didn't oust Bonin, he was one of the guys who delivered the news that Bonin wasn't going to yeah. have a, a future here. And, you know, um, a lot of people were surprised to see him on the benefactors list. Yeah. Well, let's backtrack. Who was actually on the list? And how much money are we talking about? Okay. So, you know, stepping back just a minute, you know, this is Dennis Bonin, the House Speaker, who was not running for re-election because of the secret recording scandal that was just referenced earlier. Um, he has a... Uh, three million dollar uh pack uh, funded uh, from his own campaign accounts that he was before it kind of became clear that he wasn't going to be coming back was going to be using to help uh republican incumbents uh this election cycle of course when he went down uh there were questions about how that money was going to be spent if at all um, whether he was you know the right person to be kind of controlling this war chest during a competitive uh uh, election season, uh, and uh, it was uh, our reporter Cassie Pollock broke the news that he has in fact begun spending that money. The seven uh, people on that list are Dan Flynn, uh, who is the one facing the challenge from Slayton, the uh, Empower Texans funded or the uh, Wilkes and uh, Dunn funded challenge. It's like a country music act, Wilkes and Dunn. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, Chris Patty, Jeannie Morrison, Jared Patterson, Briscoe Kane. Dennis Paul and Phil Stevenson. Phil Stevenson being uh, notable because he was on the list of 10 uh, lawmakers who Bonin seemed to have suggest mm -hmm. uh, Empower Texans should go after in this primary season. So right, back, on, back on that tape, he was said to be, you know, here's 10 people I wouldn't necessarily be upset if you attacked. Yep, which is what ultimately led to his downfall, right. saying that on tape. Um, you know, so that's that adds up. I think there was a little bit of money to a, the Hispanic Republicans of Texas or uh, a yeah. group like that. That adds up to one hundred and fifteen thousand dollars, a kind of a drop in the bucket compared when to you've the, got three million. When you've got three million, but it's interesting to see him starting to play in this, and it's interesting to see the reaction among Democrats, which was pretty immediate, saying, you know, this money is. They didn't say it's blood money, but that seemed to be kind of what they were <laughs> trying to suggest. Well, they're trying to they're trying to color the money, and you yeah. know, I, I, you know, we had back to that poll in October. Sixty eight percent of Texans hadn't heard beans about this. Yep. So you know, it's hard to say it's really tainted money. It's like you know, it's just money. Yeah, I don't think I, it's hard to imagine that really hurting anyone too much. Well, it, well, it could be weaponized. I think um, we can ar argue about how effectively, but in these Republican primaries that are actually you know that are actually contested, I think it. Again, I don't think it's to be super effective, but you know, within a Republican primary, they they know more about it than the, the broader yeah. Texas electorate. Um, and I guess this goes without saying, but like you know, some of this is is obviously has to do with politics much broader than an individual member's race. I mean, a majority of those people that uh, Watkins just listed uh, are not in serious primary challenges. I mean, a majority of those people's primary challengers have not raised enough money, uh, you know, to put gas in the car and leave the house in the morning. Uh, and so, you know, like <laughs> there's car out there. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, I mean, like, you know, it's, it's obviously helpful for the incumbent, but these, these people are not in, in real, you know, in real trouble as of, as of right now, we can yeah. see what can happen in, in the next month or so. But, um, you know, there's clearly, I think some, some, you know, broader politics at play there. Was any, were any of the people who got money reflective or on the target list for November? A few of them are right. right? Is Denflin not among the 20? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, some of these districts are going to be mean the general election. Yeah. Tested in the general election. Um, is there any, I wonder if there's any shoring up of 
an incumbent that in a general election is an easier person. I don't think to of the, the names that were listed on there that any of them are in, in real danger in the general election. Okay, yeah, that's not the first level list yeah. by any means. There, yeah, and this seemed to be designed specifically for the primary, considering all seven who received money do have primary challenges. You know, obviously, there's a lot of money left still to give if he chooses to give it. There's a whole ton of money left. You could fill up your car multiple times. And <laughs> right. We're going to use that benchmark. <laughs> oh, jet yeah. fuel. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that is all the time we have for today. Uh, thanks to Spoon for our theme music and to Raise Your Hand Texas, the University of Texas at Austin, QCare, and the Association of Electric Companies of Texas, our sponsors this week. On behalf of Matthew, Ross, Patrick, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Regina, this is Alexa. Thanks for listening. <laughs>